we've moved to a place where we're now targeting the, the proteins themselves that we think are causative in the disease. This is absolutely the focus. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. So do you ever worry about brain disease happening to you and your family? Absolutely. I ha we have uh, friends and family members who have been affected, and it's certainly something that I think about. Um, yeah, yeah, about dementia. You know, I'm over 50, and you start thinking, gee, am I going to have an issue? Yeah, it's not really like my first concern, but you know, yeah. Every now and then when you hear about it, you kind of think if it hits closer to home, like what we, what will we do, you know? Yeah, I, I do, uh, actually quite a bit and probably more than I should because my, my dad had dementia. Yeah, I'd say it's probably a, a thing that weighs on my mind a lot. My grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's and his brother passed away before that. So it definitely runs in our family. And then yes, I do because my grandmother pass away from Alzheimer's, so. One of the reasons for this fear, and I know this is true for me personally, is that there is still so much we don't know about the brain. So today I'm going to talk to Jeff Kirshner. He's a clinical neurologist, a former professor of neurology at Stanford, and now he runs clinical trials at Genentech. He's both patient-driven and research-driven, so he's the perfect guy to talk to. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Neurodegenerative diseases. What is common to them in terms of biological processes? So all of these neurodegenerative diseases will have different symptoms. Parkinson's disease symptoms are very different from ALS symptoms, very different from Alzheimer's disease. But one thing that unifies these diseases kind of at the biological level in the brain is the fact that they're characterized by the abnormal accumulation of particular proteins within nerve cells depending upon the particular disease, the identity of that protein will be different. So for instance, in ALS, we observe under the microscope the accumulation of a protein called TDP43 inside neurons. And this is in most cases of ALS. In Alzheimer's disease, many people have heard of amyloid and tau. These are two different proteins that, uh, that accumulate in the brain. In Parkinson's disease, it's a different protein, alpha-synuclein. But the notion of protein aggregation occurring and leading to the death of nerve cells is a common characteristic of all these diseases. So just to back up, these proteins are normally made. It's part of the normal process of neuronal growth, degeneration, regeneration, by and large. Yes, they're not, it's, it's not that these are foreign proteins in any way. It's just that they don't normally stick to each other and form these insoluble plaque-like inclusions. Jane. That's Wellington, my producer. Is he saying that these neurons get gummed up with this extra protein that's stuck in the brain? That's exactly right. And unfortunately, it's usually too late by the time we start noticing the effects. Jeff, what do we know about the onset of these diseases? Yeah, so one absolutely remarkable thing about the human brain is how much damage 
it can, it can undergo before you even show the slightest symptom. You can withstand the depth of a lot of neurons before you really start to show symptoms. In the case of Parkinson's disease, for instance, there's a particular part of the brain called the substantia nigra that gets disproportionately affected in Parkinson's disease. And it's not until about 90% of the substantia nigra is gone until patients show up to the doctor. Is this because the brain's constantly regenerating itself? These neurons are being regenerated? And or, are there parts of the brain that we don't use and are there as backup capacity? I use the analogy of cheap real estate and expensive real estate in the brain. There are some areas of the brain that if you hit it, very little damage to particular parts will have profound manifestations. And there's other parts of the brain where you can have incredible amounts of damage and you never see um, anything that's really clinically significant. Take, for instance, well, the motor cortex of the brain, you know, with the, the area that's, a, that's affected in, in ALS. There, even a little bit of cell death actually has consequences because the number of neurons in the motor cortex that subserves movement of any given muscle is, it's not, it's not millions. It's probably something on the order of hundreds to thousands, depending upon the particular muscle. Compared to an area, for instance, like the frontal lobes, so I love to use the example of Phineas Gage, this railroad worker in the 1800s who had the uh, unfortunate uh, situation of being around when an explosive charge launched a, a metal rod through his jaw, up through the roof of his mouth, and right up through the right frontal lobe of his brain. Oh my. He survived this injury. He wasn't the same guy afterwards, as it turned out. He used to be this really sort of friendly guy who showed up to work on time, and he started, you know, uh, becoming an alcoholic, becoming a womanizer, not showing up to work. He became a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a social outcast. Um, that's part of how we understood a bit about what the right frontal, but I mean, the man took out basically all of his right frontal lobe and had just relatively subtle changes in personality. So let me ask you perhaps an embarrassingly simple question. How much do we know about the normal functioning brain? I think that the brain is the least understood organ in the body. Imagine that we have a hundred billion individual computers that are all interconnected with each other. Each neuron, each little computer, receives connections from about 10,000 other neurons and then transmits information to about 10,000 neurons further down the line. And each of those connections has slightly different volume controls attached to it. Some are high fidelity where the signal goes through very easily and others are very weak connections. And the strength of those connections gets molded through our experience in life. This is learning. Connections grow, other connections go away. It's all sculpted through experience. Of course, with such complex diseases, it's hard to pinpoint the causative effects. And I know this also with my own work in, in cancer research. It's a bit like chaos theory or the butterfly effect. A small change in one place can result in a large change somewhere else. So in this case, every time the volume is turned up or down, it causes a whole multitude of downstream effects. And that's what makes trying to intervene in these diseases such an incredible challenge. What does this look like in terms of the patients that you see and other clinicians see? If two, three, four patients present with what you define as Alzheimer's, do their diseases look the same? So, no, patients are each unique. Alzheimer's disease looks different in different individuals. 
there are common themes. But as an example, you know, uh, loss of recent memory is a common symptom in Alzheimer's disease. But I have patients in whom language problems dominate the picture and memory's actually okay. And I have other patients for whom visual spatial processing and navigation is fundamentally impaired, but language and memory are relatively preserved. I think that the fact that we use the term Alzheimer's disease reflects a paucity of our, of our vocabulary. It, it reflects a lack of understanding of what's probably a wide range of underlying disease processes. Aggregating proteins is something that the brain does when it's insulted by something. Aggregating amyloid is an easy thing for the brain to do. In older patients, it's not just that they have amyloid and tau pathology of Alzheimer's disease. They also have alpha-synuclein, the protein in Parkinson's. They also have TDP43, the protein in ALS, present in some neurons. There's all these mixed pathologies. And who's to say which protein is driving which particular symptom that patient has? And you can imagine from a drug development standpoint, this is a big challenge because a drug that's just targeting amyloid for some patients may have a big impact and for other patients may not. So it sounds like trying to understand the aberrant mechanisms that are driving some of these protein depositions or perhaps other pathologies is really key to the, the field at the moment. Absolutely. Are we, are you and, and people in the field um, looking at the manifestation of these diseases in a uniform way, um, a genetic way, uh, triggers that could be environmental. What, what do we think is initiating these aberrant processes that are happening in these diseases? That's a good question. Certainly for many of these diseases, we do recognize that there may be genetic predispositions. And oftentimes these genetic predispositions have to do with these particular proteins that you know has helped us to understand the biology. Most people who get Alzheimer's disease don't inherit the disease from a parent in that way. When it comes to treatments though, that genetic information can teach us a lot, especially when you can find families who don't get Alzheimer's disease and understand you know, what changes do they have in their DNA that protect them from the disease. This can be very valuable from a drug development perspective. I think that in the drug development sphere for Alzheimer's, for neurodegenerative diseases in general, I think that we're moving beyond an earlier phase where we were developing drugs that treated the symptoms, served as a Band-Aid sort of to, uh, to the symptoms that come about. You know, in, in the case of Parkinson's disease, there's a death of the neurons that, serve, that provide uh, dopamine stimulation to the brain. And so we treated it by just giving patients more dopamine. And that works. I mean, it, it actually improves uh, people's lives, but it doesn't do anything to the underlying disease process. It doesn't do anything to the fact that these dopaminergic neurons are still dying. Because the process and the degeneration continues, right? Because the, the protein's not being removed. That's right. Jane, what is the ultimate goal here? Well, up until now, the only medicines have been drugs targeting symptoms. Now we are trying to harness the immune system to clear out the gunk, to do the job for us. Jeff and his team are trying to get closer to the root of the problem. We, we've moved to a place where we're now targeting the, the proteins themselves that we think are causative in the disease. We consider this to be a disease-modifying approach to treatment, trying to tackle the underlying biologic processes that are leading to nerve cells dying with a goal of preventing future nerve cells from dying by halting this degenerative process in the bud.
this is absolutely the focus and one pathway there, although there could be other pathways to go after these protein deposits. How do you make it go away? It's difficult to design just like a small molecule, a little chemical that's gonna go in and somehow dissolve that protein deposit. But with biotechnology, we now have the ability to design an antibody, for instance. Now, an antibody is something that our immune system normally generates. Our, our immune system generates antibodies against what it perceives to be foreign proteins, like a virus, a cold virus that you just caught. And then the antibody sort of tags an abnormal protein and it, it serves as like a flag saying, you know, come get me. Come it's, eat me. Yeah, yeah, so the immune system, you know, comes and attacks, you know, these, these flagged um, foreign entities. What if we design antibodies that attach to a protein that we want to go away, like amyloid or tau? Now, normally the body doesn't generate antibodies against itself. It does in certain diseases, certain autoimmune diseases but the body doesn't normally do this, but we can create an antibody that attaches to amyloid or tau or TDP43. And then the immune system being relatively dumb will see that, you know, okay, I see an antibody there, so I'm gonna do whatever I usually do when I see an antibody, I'm gonna go to attack that thing. So that is the, the fundamental theory behind the development of monoclonal antibodies against these disease-causing proteins. And what about vaccines? You mentioned vaccines. You can present um, a, a protein of interest, say amyloid, to the immune system in a way so as to generate one of these autoimmune reactions. You sort of flag this amyloid, you put it in the right context, show it to the immune system as a foreign substance, and then the immune system will go elsewhere in the body and see, is there anywhere else where this amyloid, oh look, here it is in the brain. And so that's another strategy. Given that you see patients regularly, how do you bring that experience to the research and academic space? And, and conversely, things that you've learnt in a very kind of academic environment, how do you personally bring that back to your clinical environment as well? Keeping a clinical practice has been very important to me, um, both when I was in ac academics and, and now that I've moved over into um, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, I, it's so important to me to, to keep a line of sight to the patients that we're ultimately trying to treat. I think it's very important and grounding for me to, to, to maintain a relationship with patients and understand who it is we're trying to develop these drugs for. There's a lot, you, you can't imagine the number of small considerations that go into drug development. You know, is this gonna be an intravenous drug? How many times do they have to come to the hospital to get an infusion? Could you give the infusion at home? You know. Side effects, what side effects is a, are, are a patient going to say, well, that's not a big deal. I'm perfectly happy to take that side effect if it means that my neurodegenerative disease is not gonna get worse versus side effects that, you know, that just doesn't make sense at all. Having a relationship with patients, I think, grounds the way I understand questions like that that inevitably arise during drug development. And the other part of the question is sort of how I take those interactions from patients back to when I'm working in drug development. I think that gives me something that I can take back to the patients. They understand that, that it's a tough disease and that I don't have any cure or magic pill that they can take today, but they wanna know where are things going? How long is it gonna take? What can I do to get involved and to make things better? And, and it's important to me to be able to bring 
the knowledge that I have from drug development to them. And in your career, why did you leave the pure academic world and move into the drug development biotech space? So this was a very tough choice for me. You know, and I, I think in academic circles, there's still this feeling that private industry is the dark side and, and you know, you go there because you're not a good scientist or some foolish mindset like that. I don't believe that, and, and, and after I moved, I discovered that many people in academics also don't believe that, even though they, <laughs> they, they like to say it before you leave. But the reason that I made the move from academics was because I wanted the chance to make a bigger impact. I saw myself being the one investigator running a laboratory at one university, but really my interest was in this really big problem of getting a therapy to, to people. I think that in academics, the, the, the new discoveries, the creative, crazy new ideas that come out of labs, academics is the birthplace of, of a lot of those, you know, wonderful, creative new ideas. But once an idea gets to the point that you really need to test it in a lot of people, academics doesn't do a good job at that. First of all, there's not enough manpower. Secondly, the funding agencies won't even fund projects like that because the NIH doesn't have enough money to run, you know, these big clinical trials. So once an idea has percolated up to the point that you now need to test it in humans, industry is where that problem is going to get solved, and I wanted to be a part of that. And what's it like for you to be working in this area that's new and, and uncharted? It's fascinating and it's exciting. And I'm, I mean, most of all, I'm excited by the chance and the optimism that I'll have hope and something concrete to be able to offer to my patients in the future and hope that patients around the world will be able to benefit from these new therapies, new technologies that we're testing. Well, thank you, Jeff. You've really delightfully outlined some of the successes and, and challenges to this field that's really opening up, I think. So we wish you luck and we look forward to kind of further insights in the field as, as time goes by. Thank you for having me. Super interesting. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new show. In the meantime, please tell your friends about us. Like us on Facebook, like us on Twitter. Like us everywhere, especially on iTunes. They measure this stuff, you know, that's data. And now, for me, it's back to the lab. <laughs>